At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you and I were speaking in a low monotone, I'm sure anybody who will be listening to this will switch off, switch out, zone out, will just give up. You can't, you can't. So yes, the voice can do so much. And I do believe that a lot of energy is in the voice. And so when people say, well, so-and-so doesn't sound like a leader, I think it's about that energy, that determination, that literal communication with my tone. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. William Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, and all men and women are mere actors. If our work is just another stage when we communicate and connect to others, then it follows that there is nothing like learning from the great actors and those that train them. I'm very excited today to be joined by a theater director that the Spanish press crowned the Queen Midas of theater, Tamsin Townsend. Tamsin has directed more than 40 shows over the past 25 years in Spain and Latin America, including El Método Granholm, which was the biggest box office success at the Teatro Marquino in Madrid of the past decade. I also benefited from her expertise when she taught a group of top business school professors, or so we thought of ourselves as top until she critiqued us, And she helped us help enhance our classroom presence. Yes, even part of teaching is acting. Tamsin has directed modern and classical theater, opera, and television in both English and Spanish. She also works with executives, CEOs, leaders, and students to enhance their communication and presence through her one-on-one coaching, training through her company, Be Liquid, as senior advisor to dramatic resources in the UK, and as professor at IE Business School in Madrid, Spain. Born in England, Tamsin studied theater and drama studies at the University of Kent at Canterbury, specializing in theater direction. Buckle up, you may know your content, but Tamsin will get you thinking about how to bring that to life. 
We'll talk about how to build confidence when it comes to presenting and how to transmit that powerfully, particularly avoiding the biggest enemies of communication that are undercutting you. Tamsin, finally glad to have you here as my guest on 97% Effective. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You're from the UK originally, long career primarily here in Spain. What, what led to that, becoming a theater queen here in Spain? Oh, well, these stories, you know, I call them turning point stories. And my turning point story was the oldest story of all times. I had a boyfriend. So when I finished university, I had a boyfriend and he wanted to go to Spain. I had no no particular interest in going to Spain. And I just thought, well, you know, I'll just go with him to Spain and we'll just hang out for a while and then come back and maybe pick up some Spanish and all. However, you know, as John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. And 30 years later, I am still here. Funny enough, he is actually still here, but happily married to a lovely Spanish woman and living in Cantabria. (laughs) Story, that is the story. It was, I wish I could say it was because of some great artistic motivation, but in fact, it wasn't. So 30 years here, and, and I'm very fond of this quote that we do not remember days, we remember moments, which I love the quote. And I felt, okay, this is a great one to ask to a theater director. Could you share a powerful, memorable moment from your illustrious directing career? And then maybe break down for us, what, what are some of the key elements that really made it so powerful? Oh, wow. Well, that's quite a question, isn't it? Because there's been so many. Because if theater, doing theater is uh, anything, it's memorable and it's impactful. I would say... One of my strongest, most emotional memories was actually opening a show in Merida, which, as you know, is a ancient Greek Roman theater that's in the center of Spain. It's absolutely huge. And opening, I was doing The Brothers. And It was by Plato, and it was amazing. And just actually doing theatre in a place where people have been doing theatre forever and ever was absolutely quite incredible. And I just kind of kept on touching bits of old theatre stone and being all very, very darling theatre-y and kind of weeping against ancient stone and going, oh, you know, this is the moment. I am doing theatre in the the very center of where theater has always been done. So that was a pretty beautiful, a beautiful memory. So it sounds like a lot of what makes that powerful is, is also kind of the physicality of things. You said you're kind of touching, right? We, we, the last couple of years has been all messed up with the virtual world, but you really talk about, and I can see it, that ancient theater, the touching of the stone. Is that yeah. a lot of what, what makes things powerful? Well, I think so. I think emotion, places, physicality, yeah. I'm pretty big on the energy. I have this whole thing about energy. The energy that you give is the energy that you will get back to you. So I spend a lot of time doing things that generate energy so that people get the idea that when you're on stage, 
which for me really just means when you're in the spotlight. So when you're giving a presentation, when you're speaking to a team of one or a team of <laughs> 5,000, it's all the same. You need that communicating energy. So, yeah, and you've got to get that energy from where you've got to get it. Everybody knows where they particularly get their energy from. And in that moment, I was getting ancient history energy. I was getting the thousands and thousands of years of theatre people who have been nervous and anticipating a first night back through the ages on those very same stones. So, yeah. I really love that as a, as a coach that question you said of where does each person get their energy from? It's a really good question. And this takes us to a theater director. Okay, so from someone not from this field and not familiar with the world of theater and drama and all of the tons of players who operate to to make a theater happen, maybe just share with us, it helps kind of set up some context here. As a theater director, what do you do or how do you see things versus saying there's the actual actors, acting coaches, or different mediums like a movie director? What, what makes a theater director unique and, and how you see the world? Well, the whole thing about theater, isn't it, is that it's live. Mm. And so, again, we're going back to the whole energy thing. It's a very, very simple energy. It's between the people on the stage at that moment and then the audience, which is, again, the message that I have as a coach and a trainer, you, your audience, your message. And that really just comes from the theatre. So a director has, has choices. And that's a lovely thing. You have choices right from the beginning because when you direct a show, it all begins with somebody saying, I've got this amazing play, a producer normally, the money people. I've got this amazing show. Would you like to read it? You read it, hopefully. I always think if I can get through the first 10 pages, I'm probably going to direct it. <laughs> if I can't get through the first 10 pages, I'm not even going to go there. And, and then once you start being the person responsible of how you're going to tell that message, how, what kind of vibe do you want from this play? What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? What sort of impact is it going to have on its audience? You, then you've just got to make all these great choices. And the brilliant thing about it is that you have six weeks or five weeks or however many weeks the producer lets you to rehearse. And that, I think, as a, again, as a communication trainer, is one of my central messages. The absolute necessity and joy of rehearsing, because rehearsing means getting it wrong a lot of the time, <laughs> learning from that working out how to get it better and getting it better. It's just a fantastic, collaborative, energy-giving process. And that is what I try and take into a training room with business people. That same energy of like, hey, we're just trying it out here. Try it out. If it doesn't work, that's fine. We'll do something else. And that's, a, that's what I love about... What's what I love about theatre, actually? And when the rehearsal's finished and the play is up and running, I sort of feel quite sad. I'm like, oh, I wish I could have those actors again in a rehearsal room to play with them. Because I do believe in the whole idea of theatre as being a play with players. You know, I believe in that as a concept, play. 
I, I love that idea of the, the the very iterative process and choices. You know, I think people think of this as you, you go up there and you follow the script of how to communicate. But it sounds like there's a lot of, hey, try it on. See what's working. Obviously, you've done it a lot, so you know how things come to life, but it may come to life in different ways. But you know what, Michael, and it's, this is the same thing with life. Every cast is different. Every actor is different. Mm. So something that worked for you, maybe in your last show, there's no guarantee that it's going to work for you again. So it's continually playing with the people that you have in front of you. Again, you know, you, your audience, your message. You're playing with, you know, your audience changes. Your people change. Mm. And you have to adapt with your message to that audience always because if, if it's not working, it's not working and you can't hammer that home. If it's not working, it's just not happening. Now you've got me thinking of one of my favorite Chinese proverbs that, is that you can never step in the same river twice, right? You're changing. The river is constantly changing. You had mentioned that there's no guarantees. And, and I'll, I'll go right to, again, this is a business podcast as well. So sometimes I'll just cut to the point and... I like to talk about hard truths in this podcast. With all the communication presence work you've done, actors and business leaders, is there a hard truth you would just share with us about communication presence that you yes. drop on us right here at the outset? Yes. It's not about the content. I mean, I so believe that. It's just not about the content. And a, putting a great fancy PowerPoint on is not going to help. It just isn't. It isn't. It's all about you. The message, it comes from you. It's your message and you do have to own it. Now, that is a hard truth because somebody who spends hours and hours and hours and hours and hours thinking about this amazing content and they've spent hours and hours and their IT and their marketing people have made them this amazing PowerPoint. At the end of the day, if you're not there on the stage giving out that energy, making that content interesting, fun even, striking, sticky, as I like to say, sticky because it's memorable. If you don't put the work into you and your delivery, it's just another boring PowerPoint. And that's my hard truth. Hmm. Curious, because on that hard truth, earlier you said, you know, you could, you would read and, and a lot of what you do is take a, a script to life. Does that then follow that like a, a mediocre script, you could really bring that to life or, a, or a, obviously a bad one you could probably not bring to life, but could you take a mediocre content and, and make it wonderful and impactful or is? Well, there you go. What a great question. To a certain extent, as I always say, you have to, back that content up. You know, I, I often fall back on the Albert Morabian, the 93% that 55 of that impact is going to be in the visual, 38 in the voice, and seven is the content, if it doesn't make sense. That is only yep. if it's not congruent. If you have any doubt, you will always look 
to how that is being delivered if you're unclear of that message. In a perfect world where your message is really backed up by your voice and your body and there's no need for that doubt, that doubt just doesn't happen because we totally understand it. It's a happy message, you sound happy, you look happy, it's all happy, it's all good. It's when we get mixed messages that, um, that we start not understanding and then when we don't understand, we look at the body. Which I always say is just like when you go somewhere where you absolutely don't understand the language. And as usual, I mean, I travel a lot. So it has happened to me when I haven't been able to fall back on any of the languages that I know or anything I know. And then you just absolutely go into your 93% body and word. However, going back to your brilliant, brilliant question, I think you can make a mediocre thing pretty good. Yes, mm. I do. And something that has got an awful content, maybe you've got people's attention for two, five minutes just by the, maybe the innovative way you do it or, and you think, wow. But then when people actually start getting used to you and so you can't, the artificial fireworks aren't going to work anymore, then you've got a problem if your content's really bad. The one thing that's really awful is when somebody's content is brilliant and it's delivered right. in an awful way. That's the terrible one when you just think, oh, no, oh, no, that, no, 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 no. And that is exactly <laughs> almost the genesis of my coaching and what I'm doing here, and I'm sure you run into. You see these amazing rising leaders people who work in companies, and yet they've got the content, they've got the knowledge, but they're not being perceived or they're not communicating or bringing that to life with those around them that they're either leading, they're influencing, their bosses who promote them, right? Or the boards that need to give them more resources. So I would love to ask you, as you think about you know, as we move now to kind of bringing it to life and, and what matters or these enemies you talk about in communication is, you know, how do we judge or measure one's presence or delivery is, is effective? And I ask this question just a very quick, you know, I'll, I'll do a lot of 360 reviews and, I'll, and I'll, I'll get from a boss or a leader talking about my client who's underneath them in the organization. So-and-so just doesn't come across as a leader right? And they can't give any specifics. So that frustrates engineers, that frustrates people who want to actually do something concrete. So it feels like this presence and gravitas is very ephemeral and tangible. How do we measure like your presence or delivery is effective? Well, it's that energy again. It's that energy. It's what you manage to communicate. If you don't communicate anything because in a very, very practical way, Maybe you're not making eye contact. Maybe your voice is a little too low. Maybe you're stuck in a monotone. Maybe you're literally multitasking when you speak. Some people say, I don't know what's going on with my communication. And they have a mobile phone in their hands and they're looking at it all the time. And I'm like, uh, well, maybe because you're not focusing when you're speaking to somebody. You're actually looking at another screen and trying to communicate it can be quite practical and quite clear. And a lot for me is in the voice. It's vocal energy. I mean, our voice can do so much. It's the absolute, well, I mean, we're talking on a, this is a podcast. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, if you and I were speaking in a low monotone, I'm sure anybody who will be listening to this will switch off, switch out, zone out, will just give up. You can't. You can't. So, yes, the voice can do so much. And I do believe that a lot of energy is in the voice. And so when people say, well, so-and-so doesn't sound like a leader, I think it's about that energy, that determination, that literal communication with my tone. Mm. Yeah, you wrote this nice article about kind of enemies of communication. And in there, one of them that I particularly liked was about this idea of of monotone. Mm -hmm. Hate it, hate it. (laughs) And I think that the first words or thoughts that come to my mind or, or for, for many people out there is, oh, you know, when you talk about tone, we've got to vary it, you know, go louder. But one of the points that you raised was, I'm just going to call it kind of the power of silence of these pauses and how that can be very powerful too. Can you say more about that or yes. <laughs> even give us an example? <laughs> yeah, well, I absolutely can. I think that a common enemy in communication is time pressure. And not just the time pressure we have externally, the internal time pressure that we put on ourselves. I have to say this, I have to communicate this thing and I'm just going to go really fast. I'm just going to get it out there. It's just going to be communicated and I really hope everybody's going to understand what I'm going to say and then I'm just going to go away again. Now that we know doesn't work. We do need to pause. And people obsessed with their content will just try and get all that content out in quite a short time. So they really think that they can't afford a pause. If I pause, well, the big clock's going to run out. Somebody's going to make me stop. So then that's really another time when it's all about choice. Okay, it's impossible to say 15 minutes of content if somebody has just said, I need you to give it to me in two. <laughs> you've got to choose. You've got to work out what you're going to say and you work out how you deliver it. If you don't pause, people don't know what they've had to listen to. If you give three or four bits of information with no pause, we can't, we literally can't digest that information. We, we don't know. We can't. We need that pause. I always say it's like a full stop. It's a full stop. This is where you go, oh, okay, I know what you mean. If you don't give us that time, well, then well then it just, it's just not working, is it? Go right back to the theatre. Rarely should you, you... I mean, you wouldn't find an actor speeding through to be or not to be, would you? You just wouldn't do it. People want to listen to it. They want to understand it. They want to actually get something from it. If you speed through things, if you do not pause, it means you are not taking on board that you have people that are actually listening to you. And this is very much that idea which you touch on in that uh, that same article about less is more. And I'm curious, coming more from the writing world, but hearing your perspective on, you know, those who do try to cram too much, how do you get them consciously, you know, they they believe everything is important. To subtract is very difficult. Is there 
an exercise people should do to, if they're rehearsing a speech to think about what they should cut, what they can afford to cut? Absolutely. There's hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. One that I'm very partial to is 531, which is when people will say, okay, so here's my content, and they give me about 15 minutes of things that I'm just reeling, literally reeling from. I say, okay, tell me that in five sentences. They do. And then I say, tell me that within three sentences. And in the middle of these sentences, there has to be a big pause. I say, pause, clap, breathe. Then come in with another sentence. And then finally, I can say, can you tell me that in one sentence? And they normally can. I did it with the one that's hard is the five sentences. The three sentences and the one sentence then becomes easy. It's just understanding that you do actually have to go, okay, I did love that bit, but it isn't actually really what I'm saying. So that's a really good one. You know, then you've got the idea of bullet points, you've got executive summary, 101 theater games, say that in five words, bah, lots of them. Sounds like your training and the coaching with you is a lot of fun. <laughs> well, <laughs> I do love it. I have to admit, I do love it. I find it such, I find it really fun. And that idea of play again, that comes from the theater, I do try and bring that into or the business coaching that I do, so that it's not life or death, you know? Giving a presentation doesn't have to be awful. It actually can, you can look at your audience, you can play with them a bit, you can take control of it. So many people feel that the content and the, and the stress of the moment has literally has got control of their body and their voice. So the suffering of it doesn't mean it will come out very fast and very quick and you will be just waiting to get off that stage. And then, of course, it has that very same effect on the audience. That's another thing I find fascinating. And I've seen this constantly in the theatre. If actors are on stage and for some strange and wild reason, they are a little bit unfocused or not concentrating, and they maybe look up or something. The audience will also look up, or they laugh, or there's some kind of joke that goes between them. The audience will laugh. Incredibly receptive to what is actually happening with that group of actors. And that is exactly the same in the business world. If you give out fear and angst, and I'm just telling you this stuff, the audience will perceive it just that same way. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Here, here to having more fun in, and also, again, that iterative process. As people out there may also be thinking, right, hey, I get, get it, right? There's the subtracting, there's adding pauses. And I could kind of learn those things, but... You know, deep down, I, I feel like I, I get the mechanics, but you know what? I'm totally scared shitless <laughs> of, of being up there or getting the impromptu question, you know, from people who are higher in the power structure that's going to make me, you know, look uncertain or weak. And confidence also is a very kind of intangible 
need that you've got to kind of communicate? Is there a key to getting that moving? Or if someone out there saying, I'm totally scared about this, how do I, how do I get that ball rolling? Yeah. How, how do you look at it as from a coach and theater director perspective? Yeah, that really is the thing, isn't it? I mean, people are scared of public speaking and I get it. I am too. I don't like it. I mean, I don't like it. I mean, I love being in a room and I love doing all the stuff when there's things coming back at me. But, you know, standing on a stage and just speaking, there's this massive desire to break the ice, to get into a connection. So you're not feeling so lonely because there's a real feeling of loneliness on a stage. It's all on me. And that responsibility is very paralyzing and it gets trapped in our body. So on a very physical but not superficial level, I believe in the power of warm-ups. I believe that we do need to jump around, shout, make funny sounds, practice facial expression. We, we have to get our bodies in a good way. Otherwise, we will carry all that nervous stress into our bodies. It will be in our shoulders. You, you'll see it in, our, in the neck. The, the, your leg will suddenly start doing erratic things. You will suddenly think, oh, my hands, what am I doing with my hands? And then the whole control is my hands. What am I doing? And your hands become an alien thing to you. And my way of doing this is, is a warm-up, is a big physical jump up and down, shake it out, warm-up. And that really, really helps. And then once you are on the stage, and let's just say you've done this warm-up and, and, and you're not physically tense, then it has to be about connecting with your audience. You have to work out what way of connecting is good for you. What do you need to do? There are people that need to say something. They need to ask a question and get an answer back, and then it will feel a little bit more like you're not so on your own. There are people who, who look for somebody in the audience, and it's like, oh, hi, yes, lovely to see you, Michael. You know, you, 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 you say a name, and thereby break the ice. I do think you need to find how you need to get in. Mm. Because once you've got in and you feel that you've won your audience over, that they're, that they're listening to you. Once you get that feeling, then it becomes a joy because there's all of you in it. It's not just you on your own. Warming up and, and connecting. And as you were talking about that, I think many of us think about the presenting and, and the person on the stage, you know, the, the CEO inspiring people, right? And this connection that's in a very positive way. One of the toughest things for executives I work with is the tough conversations. The, we've got to cut, we've got to say no. And that generates conflict, which most of us are averse to. And it's almost the opposite of inspiring and motivating when you have to share bad news. And, but, and it's such a huge part of leadership, right? Again, to your point around choice, a lot of strategy is, is saying no, like what you decide not to do. Can you share any thoughts on this? I'm not so sure I can make a direct analogy with the theater there. Because in the theater, a pact has been made. People have wanted to come and see a show and they've paid for it. <laughs> they've mm 
arrange to meet with friends or family to go and see a show. And afterwards, people will probably be going out to have a drink and having a chat about that show. So the audience is in on it. The thing about bad news or something that you really don't want to say is that the audience isn't on it. <laughs> they don't want it. They haven't bought in for that. So I, I, I find it really, really interesting. So my, my main thing about bad news and having to say hard stuff is be clear. And I'm mm. from a quote from the great Brenny Brown. Clear is kind. Unclear mm. is unkind. If people, as well as being told something that they actually don't want to hear. They also don't quite understand it. Their intuition is saying, oh, I'm just being told I'm being fired. But the words aren't that clear. You know, the news is bad. If the news is bad, you have to get it out as quick as possible. And I don't mean that like without any anesthetic. I do think a pre of, okay, I'm going to say something that you probably don't want to hear. I mean, I think something like that, just to give people seconds warning is pretty good. Or if you can advise or make it clear that the conversation you're going to be having with that person is probably going to not be a conversation that they want. Any Anything, anything like that is good. It's like when you get your wisdom teeth taken out, you don't want somebody to take hours over it, do you? You don't want somebody just <laughs> to be kind of going, um, well, uh, ow, prod, prod, mm, yes, okay, well, prod, prod, do you? You would rather just get the anaesthetic in, whip the tooth out, and then leave you to deal with it, hopefully with some paracetamol. Mm. So that's my main thing about saying bad things and making sure, again, that your body and that your voice and that your facial expression is empathetic. Mm. It, it's not cruel or mean. There is no personal nastiness under this. You've got to really keep that very clear, really work on that. Mm. There's the empathy and connection, but the, the kind is clear. And, yeah. and deliver it with congruency. As my girls, as my children say, it, it is what it is. They're always saying, it is what it is. Well, in that way, it is what it is. It is what it is. It is news that you don't want to hear. Don't drag it out. Don't mm -hmm. make people guess. Say it. Yeah. So you mentioned your girls, and I will invoke my daughter here and also change the get go to a, a little more playful topic, <laughs> which is, I, I was reflecting on this as we... You know, I thought of the theater director and the work that you do with classroom presence and acting. And of course, what we've gone through in the last couple of years where things have been remote, where we're not live, right? You don't have necessarily the same physicality. So two questions on this, but the first one is social media, right? I'll call it kind of the TikTokization. And I noticed that is the medium that my 14-year-old daughter, 15-year-old daughter is on. And... You know, as I kind of say, when you, you're furious, first get curious. You work with young people from undergrads up to CEOs. Everything of TikTok seems like a short drama, right? You notice how you're showing up. And we never had that growing up. I, I never kind of saw myself on video. 
How's that impacting the younger generation? Are they going to be better at acting and delivering in any way and how we might learn from that? Or the opposite, right? Is that hurting them in any way we ought to be careful about? Well, <laughs> if we knew the answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Michael, you've just, yeah, that's, 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 that, it's huge. I think there are some truly hideous, horrible, negative things. And me as a 50-year-old woman, I can just say so much stuff that I absolutely hate about all that, all the TikTok stuff. But then, on the other hand, it, there is a lot of communication in it. Our, our, I mean, does this mean as communicators ourselves, as teachers, are we being forced to be more fun and more, more dynamic because that's the thing, you know, we have to go in quickly and make an impact? Well, I think maybe so. Maybe the ante is upped. Maybe that is so. We, we do have to go with the times. We're obviously not being superficial and silly, not saying things that aren't true, not exaggerating things ridiculously, but people do have a shorter attention span. I noticed that with my undergrads. Mm. I, one of my biggest struggles, actually, with the undergrads is they, their tendency to look towards screens is just, it's so overwhelming so in that article about the five enemies of communication I do talk about the phone you know what well, obviously I am aware that a mobile phone is absolutely amazing and incredible however it's terrible when you want to communicate something and really have an impact because that phone is always going to be more interesting than you and then again we get back to what I was saying before, the time thing, how time is important and being a good communicator is trying to be, trying to get ownership of time. You know, if anyone could command a classroom of undergrads, I would believe it would be you. Do you tell them to shut their phones off? Is that a rule or do you allow <laughs> that to? I do. Okay. Yes, I do. <laughs> so you stack the deck in your favor a little bit. <laughs> and, and I have to say, I don't only say that to undergraduates. I say that yeah. to incredibly senior people that I'm in a room with. And I just say, hey, listen, here I am in the center of the room. And you're looking at your phone. What's going on? <laughs> you know, multitasking. Another thing I talk about in that article, multitasking. It's like it's meant to be a good thing. I just don't believe it. I just don't think our brains can do it. I call it doing a lot of things badly at once. Mm. Indeed. Tamsin, you started to talk a little bit about women and, and women leaders, and I know this is one of the specialties and areas uh, that you do work in. Mm. Anything that is different about working with women or the strengths or challenges that they bring from, from your perspective, coaching them? I think there are some things that I like to spend a lot of time over when I'm coaching women leaders. I think that women leaders are often, well, 
I talk about the parrot, okay? The parrot that we have on our shoulder, the parrot that is telling us negative stuff all the time, the parrot that's saying, that doesn't sound right, you've made a mistake, you've messed up, your bum looks fat, you know, anything. It's just an absolute continual thing. And we have a parrot, we all have a parrot on our shoulders. I do think that women leaders often have a very large parrot. Their parrot is telling them a lot of stuff. This need, desire to be so good, so strong, I think that is something that needs to be that needs to be spoken about and worked on and rehearsed and to find a communication style that suits you. You you don't have to. We don't have to be or in any way imitate male behaviours. So I love women. I love women leadership and I find it incredibly interesting. And I work a lot on confidence, what confidence looks like, what things actually can mess up that confidence, what things can set your parrot off, Mm. know what they are and dealing with them, how you deal with them. So I do spend a lot of time on that, but it is a particular love of mine, women Mm. need. So very much diagnosing it, understanding it, being able to name it so you can manage that parrot in some way or acknowledge it. Exactly. So you can and find out what will shut your parrot up. Because as a way, every parrot's different. Everybody's got their their own parrot. Mm. How you shut that parrot up? I mean, it's it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. It's you know what? There is one thing I was just thinking. A lot of people, a lot of women that I work with, have been told sometime in their life, ah, you talk too loud. You're showing off. These kind of little negative ning 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 things that people have been told in their life, terribly damaging. <laughs> when you then become a, a a leader or a leader of teams or and you have to speak in public because that parrot is just saying to you, ah, oh, remember when you were told you speak too loud, you're speaking too loud again. And it's normally never true. I very rarely say to somebody, dial down. I'm mostly saying, dial up and own it. Well, I've got the visual of the parrot now and I'm thinking about... Well, after this, I'm going to write down what I think my parrot is um, (laughs) saying to me or what it was conditioned to think about. For those thinking about assessing or finding a trainer or a coach, is there a good way of evaluating or critically assessing kind of who's the right coach for you? A tip that you would give to people as they're choosing one? I guess this must be like when you go and see a therapist. Hmm. How does that, does that person get you? Does that person understand you? Is there any impact? Does it make sense what that person says? If it doesn't make sense, that's not the person for you. It's the same with directing a show. All my casts are different. How do you communicate with that person? I think it's a great idea for people to work on their communication, to get feedback on it. Just rehearsal. We're back to the very same thing where we started. Rehearsal, rehearsal. You know, you do it, you do it again, and surprise, surprise, it gets better. It does. If I look back to when I first presented in front of you, (laughs) and now I feel like I've gotten better, right? And I'm more measuring against myself, maybe not (laughs) the uh, Emmy Award-winning actor out there. 
<laughs> Tamsin, it's been a powerful and lovely conversation. More that I could ask here. Any, as we close, question I didn't ask that, that was important that you'd like to call out? No, I've absolutely loved everything. As I said, I feel very lucky, very blessed. Every, every person is different. And the way people communicate is so incredibly personal that often the way to look at it is is like that. What is the best you that you want to be? How do you want to be? Tamsin, how do, I mentioned at the outset, and I will put in the show notes, but how do people best reach you, take advantage of your training, your coaching, or see your work? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. The company that I have in Spain is called Be Liquid, which is exciting and new because we started it about a year ago. And we're Antonio Resines, like the actor, Coti Soleil and myself. And we have these master shows that businesses come and see. And then there's training with that. So that's some fun things. That's Be Liquid. And then I've been working for years and years with the most amazing training company called Dramatic Resources, who I absolutely love. They're a UK-based company. All actors, all of them magicians and stand-up comedians and they're, they're just the most lovely people and lifelong friends in that company and that's dramatic resources so those are my my two great big loves be liquid and dramatic resources and you know i'm also in the the institute de empresa and it would be lovely to see you sometime along the corridors of that brilliant institution <laughs> Well, you bring tremendous energy, and as we were talking prior to the show, Tamsin, you have not lost your Midas touch. <laughs> Tamsin Townsend, theater director, communication trainer extraordinaire, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a complete pleasure. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.